You are listening to episode number 15 of The Love Noteworthy Show. Welcome to The Love Noteworthy Show, the guide to leading your life with passion, purpose, perspective, and prosperity. Each week, we feature entrepreneurs, influencers, game changers, and change makers who provide powerful strategies for creating a remarkable first impression that leads to a lasting impact in your business, brand, and personal life. So come join us as we transform your mindset and teach you the lessons that you want and need to become love noteworthy. What's up, lovers? How are you all doing? I'm really excited. It's the end of October. Holy cow, this year has gone by so quickly. I cannot believe that it's the fourth quarter of 2014. And with that comes kind of the end of the year, the rev up of New Year's resolutions, and more importantly, uh, celebrations of just being really thankful and giving back. So we had Thanksgiving in Canada a couple weeks ago. Thanksgiving in the U.S. is coming up in next month. And then, of course, there'll be all of the kind of winter celebrations. And so I cannot be happier today to be featuring an interview with Grail Noble. And she is the owner and founder of Yellow House Events, which is based out of Toronto. And this event planning company is one of the top event planning companies in Canada. And Grail was... She was recognized as one of Profit Magazine's top 100 women who are entrepreneurs that own successful Canadian businesses. And so in today's episode, we talk all about planning major corporate events, kind of what the trends are, how she built her business, how important it is to be hiring a really good team around you, and a whole bunch of other tidbits and tips on if you want to become an entrepreneur or currently are, how to really elevate your brand, your business, and your image. And so without further ado, here is episode number 15 featuring Grail Noble of Yellow House Events. Welcome back to the Love Noteworthy Podcast. I'm your host, Ree Sims, and today our guest is going to be talking all about entrepreneurship, planning a perfect event, and managing one of Canada's top 200 fastest growing companies. Welcome, Grail Noble. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, I just want to give the audience a little bit more background into yourself. So Grail is the founder and CEO of Yellow House Events, which brings brands to life all over North America. Yellow House is one of the only event marketing companies named in Profit's top 200 fastest growing companies in Canada. And Grail is also named to the W100, which is a list of the top 100 female entrepreneurs in Canada and is recognized as running the fastest growing company owned by a woman in the Profit 200 list. She is also a contributing writer on business and event marketing to the Financial Post, Globe and Mail, Women's Post, and Meetings and Incentives Travel Magazine. So, Grail, before we dive into the art of event planning mastery, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background prior to founding Yellow House Events? Sure, yeah. So, I um, uh, right out of university, I, uh, I've been involved in some event uh, fundraising and uh, event marketing initiatives at university, so it made sense that I, um, you know, take a career in uh, event management and I worked for an event management company and really learned the nuts and bolts of how to put on big business conferences for, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, really learned the real process of event planning there, I would say. Um, from there, I launched an event marketing department for YTVE, which was exciting because it was their first time quite literally getting out of the box 
and uh, that was a, a great experience um, in terms of understanding broadcasts, how advertisers, um, you know, can how you can add value to advertisers, uh, and and also the live television production at an event. So definitely great experience there. Um, from YTV, I went on to I worked um, in Europe. I worked on the Atlanta Olympic Games a long time ago. And then um, I uh, was lucky enough to be one of five people um, who rolled out the um, NBA, so the National Basketball Association brand across Canada, which was exciting because we were reported into New York um, and we were starting something very new, but everybody, you know, we had the power of the brand behind us. So um, it was, you know, the excitement of being part of a big brand and a big organization, but being able to build something new and from scratch. And today, basketball is one of the most participated sports um, in the country. And that was mm-hmm. something that, you know, we really started because we knew to build fans, you needed to get people participating. So that was exciting. Um, great opportunity, really got to understand um, event marketing in its true sense, uh, um, because the NBA doesn't own anything except the licensed marks. That's all they mm-hmm. own. So really... Uh, uh, understood um, the power of event marketing there and then went on to Molson, worked on the Molson Indies, on some snowboarding events, um, and then after Molson started my own business. So that was my career trajectory um, before starting out on my own. That's amazing. Those are all like such big companies. I remember as a child watching YTV religiously, like after school and stuff, which is so funny. Oh, oh yeah, I, I was always amazed at how many fans the PJs, as they were called, the program jockeys had, yeah. and the lineups we would have around the blocks for, on the block for um, autographs, and that's still the case today. So, yeah, it's definitely a yeah. yeah fun industry for sure. So, after being in the industry for quite some time, how did you decide to start your own event planning company, and where did you get the inspiration for? the name Yellow House Events from? Yeah. So I started my own business because once I'd worked in big business and, you know, it took me out to build a Rolodex and some great experience before I went out on my own. And I'd learned how to work within a corporation and and how they work. I'd also seen some of the downside of um, working for a large corporation. You know, uh, it seemed to me that there was, you know, you you graduate with this naive believing belief that, um, Hard work is going to equal a payoff, but it doesn't always in big corporations. I saw some people work very, very hard who were very, very, very smart. who got let go for other reasons. And it felt, uh, particularly as a woman in business, and I was in a fairly male-dominated business, um, that I wasn't sure this was going to be the right lifestyle choice for me. So the exact moment I decided to go out on my own, I was pregnant and um, painting the walls of my house that I had bought my first home and uh, I had this great amazing feeling of uh, ownership and sort of power of my own destiny because I rented up until then and uh, you know I didn't need to ask anybody what color to paint that wall they were my walls and I really sort of felt that I owned it that um, the outcome and, and how that was going to look. And I kind of wanted that same feeling in my professional life. So I turned to my husband and said, I think I'd like to start my own business. And he looked at my pregnant belly and he looked at me and he said, really? <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah. about that? Like, time? what about maternity leave? <laughs> and uh, I was quite sure about it. In fact, because I was pregnant, I knew that running my own business was going to be hard and hard work. Uh, but also, again, meant I had a little more control over my time and, and how I spent it and where I spent it and a bit more flexibility. So I went for it, and uh, that's 
that's how it happened. And then to the second part of your question, how Yellow House, I actually started out the company, um, and it was called Grailco. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a unique name, I have a unique name, so went with that. But then I realized uh, pretty soon that um, that name meant people were always hiring me, and I was finding, you know, I was getting a lot of the type of business that you might get as a, co- as a consultant mm-hmm. um, or as a contractor because people were hiring the person, and they weren't hiring a process or a company or an idea, you know, ideas. They were really hiring a person. And I realized there was no way to grow the business uh, past a certain size that way. So I rebranded um, to Yellow House Events. And the name was um, inspired by Van Gogh, who had his most creative period when he lived in a Yellow House. Uh, and at the same time, I'd actually come up with the name first, believe it or not, and then fell in love with the Yellow House myself and bought it within a month of uh, renaming the company. So it was all sort of serendipitous, I guess. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. So when starting your business, uh, what was the most challenging part, uh, besides being pregnant, I'm sure, of starting the business, and what would you have done differently given the knowledge that you have now? Um, I would say definitely the most challenging part of starting a business is you're everyone. So, you know, I remember my my computer had a, you know, broke down and I, there's no IT, there's no one to call. And, um, I had to get my own Blackberry sorted out at the time. And, you know, all of that type of stuff, you spend a lot of your time. And I think you underestimate the amount of time you spend on business administration. Um, and you know, it can actually be quite detrimental to your business because you only have so many hours in a day. And I quickly became aware that if I wasn't selling, there wasn't, there was no business. Um, so I've always been on the sales side um, of the business, and that has actually probably been the skill that has, you know, set me up for success better than anything else. Um, you know, even now to this day, I'm still the key salesperson at our company, um, whereas I've been able to train people on execution because it's more process-oriented. Mm. Um, but that's a piece that's really important, and the people I would see fail would be people who would go out there, they'd win a big piece of business, then they'd have to execute it. So I say they have to hunt it and kill it, uh, hunt it, kill it, and eat it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they would be so busy executing uh, on the piece of business they won that then they would look up and be ready for the next piece of business and, and hadn't allowed enough time in the pipeline and, and inevitably would not, not be successful. So um, I became very well aware that that you can't, um, work in a linear way like that. You have to sell and execute simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I still to this day have a belief that when I'm at my busiest, busiest peak, when, when we feel like we have more business than we can possibly handle, that's when I have to start selling. Um, because that tells me that six months down the road, uh, we're going to, going to feel the lag. So definitely those are some of the, the challenges with starting your own business. Um, and I think a lot of people spend a lot of time on the business plan, which you have to have. It's critical, but you can overthink it because that plan is going to evolve as you build, as you build it out. And until you have a customer, you don't have a business. And until you have more than one customer, you're just a, you're just a consultant. So really, um, people cannot, they cannot underestimate how important selling is to being successful in business. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Selling is scary, especially when you're an entrepreneur because you're passionate about your craft and then selling exactly. is just a whole different skill set. Like 
personally, I'm terrible at selling. <laughs> I mean, but you know, people always say that they always think they are. I'm not a traditional salesperson. I've never done a cold call in my life. Yeah. Um, and my, you know, I have a, a, a business over well over a million dollars, um, or many million millions of dollars. So it, you don't think you're a good salesperson, but if you can build a sort of relationship and you're passionate about what you do, then you're probably the best salesperson you have. Yeah, true. Very true. Yeah. So just, um, I guess touching on executing and selling at the same time. Um, I know that you have quite a large staff of almost 20 people now. Something like that? Um, with part-timers, with less than that full-time. We're closer to uh, 12 to 14 full-time. Okay, okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with hiring your first employee? I know that can be the scariest because you just have to make sure that you really trust the candidate, and especially for mm. small business owners, it's so challenging to kind of, I guess, give away that control, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually probably the hardest part. My my first hire story is actually a it's a great story because I hired so the first intern. I, well, I'd had a couple of interns to help me out on on projects, but not um, more than just a once off here or there where they had to do one project for their course. But the first intern I hired, I gave her something to do, and it came back twenty minutes later, and it was perfect. Wow. I thought, wow girl's good and uh, gave her something else to do and realized very quickly that she was um, just going to be great. So my first intern, her name was Meg Sweeney, um, became my first hire and she, she is still with me today and is my director of operations now. And amazing. she's as amazing today as she was then. So for me, I was very, very lucky with the first hire, but I'd, I'd had enough experience with interns and certainly in my previous corporate life right. that when you find somebody who just seems to get it and is, is really good, um, then you, you know, when you, they're rare, so you, you've got to jump on it. But I do remember very clearly she was, uh, finishing up her, her course and she needed, um, to, you know, her internship was part of her credits, uh, toward graduating. So, uh, she came to a meeting with me and I said, you know, you don't have to refer to yourself as the intern. Um, and because, uh, you know, we had talked about her now working with me full time and she said, OK. And I remember we were in the meeting and she declined to ask her a question. She said something about, well, that wouldn't be till next semester. And I just looked down and then as we left the meeting, I said, just remember in corporate, we talk in quarters. <laughs> Not semesters. We had a, such a good laugh about it. Oh, that's um, oh yeah, I'm just making that transition. Um, but yeah, no, that was uh, definitely definitely my my first and best hire. But I would say um, internships. You know, it's a little bit like you, you can't date. You don't have to jump right into marriage, and it's a great way for the candidate to see if it's where they want to work too, and if they like it. Because that's you know, it's a fifty fifty deal. You have to love what you do to be good at it. Very few people are good at something they don't really love. Yeah, absolutely. Passion drives the focus and motivation for sure. Exactly. So it gives both an opportunity to see if you're happy, you know. I would say after that, hiring good people is about the environment you create. Um, that's so important, and it's such an important way to attract good employees. So for us, we've, and we've always, my first office space was very funky, very comfortable, um, you know, we made sure that it was a place people wanted to come to work at every day because when I went back to why I started my own business, it was because I wanted to wake up and be excited to go to work every day. And a big part of that is the physical space you're in as well as the mental space you're in, intellectual space you're in. 
Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, you have quite an amazing list of uh, clients with your business. What I know, like for a lot of small businesses, one of the challenges that they have is kind of creating that unique selling proposition or figuring out what really makes their company unique. So what makes Yellow House Events unique in comparison? What makes Yellow House Events unique? Yeah. 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 I mean, we spent quite a lot of time thinking about that, the USP and, and, you know, all of, all of those things. And it's actually very, very difficult to articulate. Um, for us, we will talk about some of the things that make us unique. Um, one of the, 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 um, sort of key differentiators for us is, um, the perfect blend of, of right and left brain. So we are, super creative and probably more creative than a lot of um, people in our space, but we have an absolutely bulletproof process that we layer everything on. In my business, because it's a service-based business uh, to scale, there's only one way you can possibly scale a service-based business, and that is through some very uh, strong, solid, logical, and easy-to-use processes um, because you've got to make sure your outcome is um, controllable and something that, again, you can train multiple people to produce the same outcome. Uh, so for us, that process piece is really important, but the layer on top of creativity um, is, I think, what really differentiates us. And then, you know, likability is probably the number one factor. I remember hearing uh, Robert Herjavec speak uh, at, a, at a conference. He's, you know, been on the Dragon's Den, um, serial successful entrepreneur. And uh, he said he he started uh, up new business. You know, every time he started a new business, but he said every single thing back down to level, always being relatively equal with the product, people hire people they like. Um, so if you can create an environment, an environment where the customer feels that they can, that they have a friend and that somebody's really got their back and that you care about the project as much as they do. Likeability is probably, um, our biggest selling point. That's hard as it is to articulate. <laughs> Um, I'm just. Well, we, I mean, we do have, we have some rules around how to be likable, but it's a difficult thing to train. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's just like um, I know in business that people talk a lot about charisma, and it's like one of those things that's very hard to like. There's not to tangibly train. It's just something that people will have or not have, but can certainly yeah. develop. <laughs> you either, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You either have it or you don't. I mean, there are look. There are some some statistical. Um, there's data out there that, that shows you how to be more likable to your clients. So for yeah. example, um, the, the speed at which you respond to a question is counted in the likability quotient, you know? So that's an easy thing to train. You know, so we have a, a actually a two hour uh, response window. Um, and if you're going to be in a meeting longer than two hours, then you'll probably let your key clients know. So there are some actual um, you know, actionable things you can do, but a lot of likability is just, yeah, like you said, with charisma, you have it or you don't. <laughs> Either nice or you're not, you know? Well, you definitely do, so. <laughs> 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 All right, so let's talk a little bit about events. Um, can you tell our listeners why hosting events 
can help to connect their brands to their customers? Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite questions. I, I mean, obviously, I'm in events because I believe in them. But I, even if I weren't in events, um, I know that they are one of the best ways to build a brand. And the the uh, metaphor I'll use is, uh, it's the difference between being pen pals or really friends. <laughs> so, you know, I'll always say, you know, remember the, I don't know if you would remember, but way back we used to have pen pals and you would write to some stranger across the world and you would tell them all kinds of intimate things. I mean, you would share quite a lot of information, but when you, if you ever met your pen pal, it was really awkward until that, you know, so time had passed and they were always just a pen pal. Whereas you can spend half an hour having a coffee with someone and breathing the same air and be in the same, you know, same space and looking into their eyes and you have a completely different connection with them than you would if you were just pen pals. So similarly, you know, when you're building a brand, it's really important to be pen pals and to do direct mail and to advertise and all of those other traditional um, advertising and marketing tools. But it's when people are face-to-face and in the same room with you and your brand, and if you've created a brand immersion, that's when they'll really develop an affinity uh, for your brand. So human beings are, you know, are the psychology behind why we make purchases and why we, um, you know, choose to like one brand over another is very much based in our experience mm-hmm. with that brand. And, you know, again, that's I guess that's why our industry has moved into, you know, the term experiential is now quite overused. But, um, that's really what it's all about. So we always say if you can, if you can produce an event um, that ha- is a good experience um, and it's, it's, it becomes a depth of impression. So in the advertising business, we measure impressions. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to measure depths of impression. And the depth of impression is the experience that people are having over a prolonged period of time mm-hmm. um, with your brand. So, um, you know, just a really important part of building brand affinity. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, without giving away too much of your signature process, is there kind of a general process that um, when people are planning events, like that they can follow for conceptualizing, planning, and then running their corporate event? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we develop a blueprint that has all the key components. But, you know, the, the if I was to pull some of the most important components out, mm-hmm. I would Say, you know, we've actually spent some time uh, studying the psychology of the event attendee, and there's some interesting things that you can do, just very easy things that you can do right off the bat that will make one event feel a lot better than the other that are all based on sort of human psychology. So, for example, we know that people who attend events are um, are at heightened anxiety, even if they're the most outgoing person, if they're the CEO of the company. They're all thinking the same things. Am I in the right place? Am I going to remember people's names, am I dressed appropriately, all of those things. So, um, you know, by doing certain things at the very outset of your event, um, repeating the look and feel that was on the invitation, whether it's a digital invitation or, or otherwise, um, psychologically makes people feel more at ease because they are seeing a familiar um, iconography that automatically brings down their anxiety level. You know, the same reason they talk about staging your home and spending time on the first seven seconds that people walk into your house similar at an event. So there's certain things you can do um, once you understand attendee psychology that really do make a big difference. Um, And then in terms of the planning, I mean, we do have some processes, you know, to mitigate risk because that's that's probably the biggest challenge of an event is it's live. 
it's not like, you know, say, oh, the focus groups don't really relate to this. Uh, we're going to pull the ad or we're not going to put the ad on the air in the first place. Um, it's happening live. You probably have your most important stakeholders in the room. Who else would you invite? And the worst part is they've invested their most valuable asset, which is time, mm-hmm. to be there. So once they're there and it's happening live, you really can't afford to blow it because now you've wasted their time. Whereas if I send you a piece of direct mail that you take, you toss it in the garbage, you move on, no harm, no foul. But with an event, if you give me a bad experience and I've taken the time to come to your event, um, you've actually potentially, you know, hurt our relationship. So it's really important to mitigate risk at your events and to have a plan B and to make sure, again, that you're focused on the attendee experience. And, and you know, if your coat check is disordered, it sounds like such a small little checklist item, you know. Oh, on on an event because I they have their work because if it's a corporate, they don't need to pull out a self all many of the check. You know, how, how difficult is it when he hands over their they're actually you know giving a trust to you? And if that co check is organized a good experience, they're probably going to take in your business message. Um, really about walking through your attendee experience from beginning to end and building everything around that. Yeah, that's great, great, great advice. So, in terms of events, do you have or foresee any trends for the future of the event industry? Just with the onset of like social media and online interactions becoming a lot more prevalent, I would say, in like businesses and their operations and plans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so actually, to be honest, social media is one of the best things that ever happened to events because, you know, <laughs> about depth of impression, hard it is to to measure, measuring ROI on events is very, very difficult because really you're only touching the people in the room. Let's say you've invited 200 or 500 people and they're in the room. But in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of people. So social media has been an amazing um, addition to the events. You know, a lot of people thought that social media would harm events. People would do online meetups. They would do online meetings. And that is happening to some extent, mm-hmm. but the power of getting face-to-face is not lost on most companies. So um, social media is amazing, you know, putting a hashtag against an event, getting the dialogue um, out there to not just the attendees of the event, um, but people interested in the subject matter outside of your four walls, and mm-hmm. also um, ensuring your event lives on before well, after the event, of course, um, but also beforehand. So uh, any event that I attend that doesn't have social media attached, I, I feel there's got to be something wrong. <laughs> that's the dialogue that, that people are having. Um, and the dialogue they're having amongst themselves at your event, their yeah. entire experience is enhanced um, with the, you know, inclusion of social media. So, you know, everything from, and there's, I mean, there's great aggregators out there now, so it doesn't have to be just about Twitter or Facebook or, you know, it can be all kinds of social media, all aggregated under one hashtag that you can project onto walls, ceilings, screens, um, or not even just let people be part of the dialogue. So it's been an amazing tool. And it also tells events, the organizers of an event in real time, what your people need. 
um, and or what they're enjoying or what they're not enjoying. So um, it's an amazing way, again, when you've got a live event that's happening now to either fix something that you need to fix or really capitalize on something that's working or, or fix something that's not. So social media and digital um, is obviously huge. In terms of other trends, um, being really playful with food is definitely a trend we're seeing. Mm, yeah. um, so food used to be just something that you had at your event, but now the food is becoming part of the decor, part of the activities. So, for example, we just did an event uh, not too long ago for Google, and we had a donut wall as oh. part of the event. And it was a huge wall we created with colorful donuts and all kinds of exotic flavors. And the the wall itself, um, you know, was was visually interesting and added um, color and decor. Uh, and it was also the parting gift. So as people left the cocktail, uh, we had somebody there who handed them a fresh donut, boxed it for them, and some custom uh, packaged coffee and said, here's your donut and coffee for tomorrow morning. So oh, it was amazing. the parting gift. It was, you know, it had so many different purposes. So everything from donut walls to s'more stations to candy stations are huge, even at, you know, very... Uh, serious business events. We're seeing candy stations. We're seeing a cookies and milk break where yeah, we're yeah, putting yeah. out, you know, fresh milk with brightly colored straw and so much <laughs> with food, I would say. Um, and people want to be involved with food. So, um, you know, cause the, that definitely is a big, big trend. And then the other thing I would say is um, uh, adding uh, interesting things. Uh, we'll bring in a, a chef, um He's called Bar Chef. He has a, a place here in Toronto, but he focuses on um, the molecular, um, you know, a lot of people are molecular, molecular cuisine is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, so he, right. So he'll, you know, create everything and it'll still be um, what looks like dry ice pouring off of it and, and um, where you bite into things and they just sort of disappear into your mouth. So it's yeah. a very sort of scientific approach, but amazing um People love love uh, love that. So definitely, I would say fun with food is uh, a big trend right now. Oh, that's great! I love food in general, but I love like when it can be playful and kind of bring back that like youngness or like being a kid or yeah. a child and just playing in like a more corporate or professional setting. Yeah, and that's the thing that's amazing is I mean, again, we don't you know I should clarify as a company we don't do any personal events. We don't do birthday parties or. Yeah from its or weddings, we only do corporate events and very often for very big corporations. So all of these sort of fun with food, these are all happening at, at very corporate, you know, corporate type of events. You know, the other thing I would say too is of course the local um, and organic movement is huge at events. So yeah, yeah. we've done a couple of events now where you've had a herb wall. So the whole backdrop to the bar is um, a living wall full of different herbs that are used in the uh, drinks that they're making fresh or the or used as garnishes um, on a food station. So, uh, you know, even just using, um, you know, the food as garnishes is uh, really popular. That's great. Okay, let's um, switch gears here a little bit. So tell me, what do you enjoy most about running your own company? Um, you know, I would definitely say that same feeling I had when I was painting those first walls that I owned. <laughs> um, I get that feeling every day where I can mold and, and guide the corporate culture and, you know, how we're all feeling and what the space looks like and, um, you know, ultimately what we produce. I can feel very proud of seeing people grow uh, that I've hired and, and letting their creativity, you know, come alive and 
than seeing it executed. Um, that's always very um, fulfilling. Um, you know, and just being able to, I mean, the, the, there, there's definitely pros and cons to running your own business, but being able to own your own destiny. You know, for example, last week, my husband looked at me on a Monday night and said, hey, both our kids are in camp this week. We should have booked some days off this week. And I said, I know, why didn't we? Why didn't we? He didn't think of that. And so he went on his iPhone sitting at a bar and he booked us a trip to Ireland for the next night for three days because that was what was available on points. And so I sent a couple of emails to reschedule some some meetings and uh, I could do that. So that's, you know, I guess the upside of, you know, I knew that I wouldn't be missing anything major. Um, and, you know, it would have been my birthday. And so we decided to just go to Dublin for three days. Um, and it was amazing. And I was still online, a lot of it. And, you know, thank God for smartphones. Um, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that I don't have to answer to. Um, and that's that freedom I was talking about before that really is probably the biggest benefit of uh, running your own business that and setting your own corporate culture to one that makes you happy yeah for sure i figure if i don't want to come to work then why would they yeah exactly exactly that's such good advice So, so the next question i have for you is are there any tips that you have for small business owners or aspiring entrepreneurs on how they can grow their businesses more efficiently or quickly based on kind of the last eight plus years of running your own business? Yeah. Um, you know, I would definitely say be very, very honest with yourself. Figure out what you're good at and what you suck at and, and be honest and clear about it and then hire for your weaknesses um, and create space for your strengths. Um, tending to hire people who are like you because that's easier. Um, I would say, so for me, um, you know, I was good at selling. Um, I was good at executing, um, but I'm not great on the administrative side. There's nothing more boring to me than drafting up an invoice. Yeah. <laughs> for other people I know, um, drafting up an invoice is actually where they feel their sense of satisfaction because that's that moment where they, they're going to be paid for what they're doing. So they're very driven by that and motivated by that. So, in the first few years of my business, I was late to invoice people. It wasn't my strength. I could see that very quickly. And I immediately hired somebody who was very, very good at, at that, very organized, and took it off my plate. And it was amazing. There was no way my business could have grown into where it is if I didn't have that strong. Um, started as a bookkeeper, and she's now my director of finance, and she's amazing. Um, and it allows me to be good at what I'm good at. It allows her to be good at what she's good at. And we both have a deep respect for each other's strengths. And similarly, you know, Meg, who I talked about earlier as my first intern, who's now my director of operations, we are similarly like-minded in a lot of ways, but we're also very different. And she is, as it turns out, now that I've trained her, she is better at operations than I am. Um, she's exceptionally detail-oriented. So again, I've really let her uh, soar. I don't micromanage her at all. She is better at executing events than I am. So um, allowing her to you know, to, to go forward and be as good at, as she is at what she does. So I think that's that's been key. And I think even with employees, once they're in your organization, um, I don't have a very hierarchical structure. Um, I'm perfectly happy to create a position for somebody to match their strengths if it brings value to the business, of course. Um, so I have somebody who was amazingly 
uh, talented writer. Um, so we had uh, two people like that, and we um, one was a male, one's a female. So we took them off doing just execution and and engaged them more in writing and social media and scripting, and that's great for them. So I think it's really um, about spending a lot of time identifying strengths and weaknesses and and um, being strategic going you know with that information. That's great. So sort of on that note, um, what do you think? I, I know somebody else has asked you this in a prior interview, but I was really interested to hear. Um, what do you think holds many female entrepreneurs back from becoming hugely successful? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a, it's such a loaded question, right? Yeah, because, yeah, you know, of course. <laughs> first of all, have to define success, right? You know, uh-huh. I mean, you say statistically, women are actually more entrepreneurial than men mm-hmm. um, in that more businesses are started in Canada and across North America by women than by men. But you're right that um, even though we we start more businesses, um, so I think it's, I think this but is about 60% of businesses are started by women to 40%. But by the time those businesses hit a million dollars in revenue, it drops to about 13%. Only about 13% of businesses over a million dollars in revenue are run by women. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of research on this. You know, there are women who very purposefully keep their businesses small because they don't want to manage people and, you know, they want to have, you know, I'm using air quotes, which you can't see, but that work life balance. <laughs> um, so, so some women, you know, very much on purpose keep their businesses small. I would also say though some women are, are there's a fear um, of, of that business taking over and uh, you know it being too much and then needing too much and it definitely gets harder the bigger you get, the bigger your contracts you know you're playing with, with bigger fish and, and it's definitely got a scary component to it. Um, so I that's probably what holds women back? Um, and when I when I say that, the answer is it's our own wishes, our own dreams, and our own definitions of success. Yeah. So for a lot of women, running a multinational, you know, multi-billion-dollar corporation is just not their dream. Um, but there are some who it is, and and they are, you know, and that's what they're doing. So I I think it's more about how we define success. I think for a lot of women, you know having a business you love and having a private life that you love, whether you have kids or don't, um, is important to them. And so I think, I think that's what it is, but I, I do think it's, um, you know, it, it starts to become intimidating. You know, the other thing I would say to women, we do have obviously a different style in general. I've seen some women who have very masculine style and feminine style. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, we do tend to business for the relationships. And the bigger your business grows, the less hands-on you are, the fewer relationships you're involved in direct. And it's um, unappealing to a lot of women. Mm, okay. If that makes sense. So um, in terms of people that are, or our listeners that are listening that are aspiring event planners, and not just in the sense of like organizing events here and there, but actually starting their own business. Um, what advice would you have for them to start their business in that industry? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of those things I always say. Um, uh, it's a very competitive space, yeah. and I think everyone's going to say that about their business. But I always say that you know, anyone who's ever attended a friend's wedding, forget plan their own. When they lose their, their job, 
they'll hang their shingle out and say, I'm going to plan events. How hard can it be? Or (laughs) other example I'll give is you you never have a CEO who'll turn to his executive assistant and say, will you handle all the PR for this, you know, program we're launching? But they absolutely will turn to their assistants and say, can you run all the events that that my company is doing? Because it is not always perceived as a science um, or something that you need to have a degree in. Um, So I think people who are starting their own event business need to understand that and they need to understand that, um, you know, it's a cluttered, cluttered space. So you need to differentiate. You need to have a process. You need to have a plan. You can't just, and then, you know, you can't just say, I'm going to plan events for a living and start a business. You really have to have one client. Yeah. Um, and I would recommend always starting with at least one client. And while you're working hard for that client, you need to be working on getting a second client. So that's really, you know, the, the key thing. So I would say if you're starting your own business and you hate sales, partner up with somebody who likes it. Um, and, you know, even calling it sales scares people. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, maybe just saying if you like to build relationships, if you're a relationship-based person, then you're a salesperson. So if you have that skill set, you'll probably be successful. Um, and then the third piece is make sure you have your, your process and your product in place. Without a good product, you don't have a business. So you know, I would say to all of, uh, all of my, my whole team, even today, I'll always say the best marketing and advertising we can do is to run a good event for someone mm-hmm. because that will always lead you to another piece of business. Absolutely. And the you know the worst thing you can do is have something go badly because no amount of sales relationship building that I can do is going to undo that. You know, <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> so I guess it's yeah, do good work, build relationships, um, and uh, you know, don't underestimate uh, how important it is to uh, you know differentiate yourself. Well, this has all been really fantastic advice, Grail. Um, I just have one last question for you before we end the interview. Um, so on our podcast, we talk a lot about um, being love note worthy, which is really combining those qualities of love notes. So being sincere and passionate and personalized and thoughtful, a lot of what you talked about today, and then also um, creating that noteworthiness. So especially with events, having that it factor and the unique brand offering again, a lot of what we talked about. So my final question for you is what is your number one tip for others on how they can be more love noteworthy in their business and lives? Hmm. Um, You know, I really, really believe it's about paying it forward, Um, but not paying it forward because you think it's going to pay you back. I think you've got to really love people. I think you've got to love people and care about people and give them um, your time and your energy and it will come back to you. Um, I think that's probably the big piece. I mean, all of my businesses is primarily word of mouth. The biggest, my first big client I ever landed was because I'd had tea with somebody who was new to the country and wanted to um, work in events and had worked in events in the, in the U.S. where she was from. And I gave her as many names as I could and, you know, she landed at Research in Motion, and the next thing I know, BlackBerry was my biggest client in the peak of their of their heyday. So, um, that's an example of you know just just get out there. You know, you're never gonna you've got to be out there. You've got to care about people. You've got to connect with people. Um, and I think that is what in the end will make you noteworthy because it, people are either talking about you in a positive way or they're talking about you in a negative way or they're not not talking about you at all. And if they're not talking about you at all, you definitely don't have a business. 
Yeah. If they're talking about you in a negative way, you're not going to have a business for long. But if they're talking about you in a positive way, you will be successful and noteworthy. That's amazing advice. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, before we end it, I have a challenge for all of our listeners, um, as we do at the end of our shows. So tell us about a time when you planned an event and it didn't go according to plan. How did you compensate? What lessons did you learn? And what advice do you have for other listeners and readers today? So definitely um, get involved in the conversation in our comments below the podcast. Thank you so much again, Grail. Um, we are going to put all of your contact information and Twitter handles and Instagram and all that jazz uh, below this podcast interview. Uh, But thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. Thanks. 